Ah, drumming from a voodoo ceremony in Haiti. Well, you know, throughout Africa in the diaspora, from the Haitian island of Hispaniola to Morocco to Zimbabwe, in addition to many, many cultures around the world, music and spirituality are linked in a variety of ecstatic, transformative experiences. Hello, I'm Georges Collinet, with you on this hip-deep edition of Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Today, we explore the phenomenon of trance. As we'll see, electronic dance music like rave does have a distant connection back to African spiritual traditions. Once I had my training in religious studies, I began to understand that these were legitimate religious experiences. Then we'll dig deeper to discover why the Mbira Zavudzimu is the perfect instrument for bringing Shona spirit mediums into trance. This is transformation posing as repetition. It issues forth, I think, this ability to transport you out of the everyday. And finally, we'll look into some recent neurological studies that give us clues about what happens to the brain during trance. But first, let's take a journey of discovery and explore just a few of the many trance traditions across the globe. In past episodes, we've discussed several different kinds of ecstatic musical practices that involve ideas of trance or spirit possession. On this journey, we'll hear from a number of hip-deep scholars and musicians we've spoken to over the years, and they'll help us consider trance and spirit possession traditions from multiple points of view. Let's begin our journey in the East, in the Arab world, where musicians perform an overpowering form of music called tarab. Tarab refers to the music that creates ecstasy, but also it means ecstasy itself, which is an indication that the music is directly linked to transformation, to emotional evocation. The music itself becomes a very powerful medium. That's musician and scholar A.J. Rassi, a professor at UCLA and author of the book Making Music in the Arab World, The Culture and Artistry of Tarab. Professor Rassi says Arab musicians don't just create ecstatic experiences for their audiences, but also for themselves as performers. And the very peak of the Tarab experience is an elusive state known as Saltana. It's a transitory state, it's very delicate. It's a mystical state in a sense that we don't totally understand how it develops, why at certain moments. Uh, some musicians say, well, we cannot induce it, it just comes and goes. When musicians achieve that moment where every aspect of the music is unfolding flawlessly, where every player is working together and performing at the highest level of expression, that's when you experience Saltana. All of these things really, if done well, of course, uh, create music that is ecstatic, music that has Saltana. Where you're inspired, there's a sense of surrender. You're overpowered, something haunts you, something dominates you. But by being overpowered, you're empowered. You, be, you, you be develop that magic, that fire, that transcendence that allows you to excel.
Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide's Hip Deep Journey into the Nature of Trance. Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts. Okay, after the 11th century, Sufi brotherhoods moved into Africa and they brought Tarab music with them. You can hear the influence of Tarab as far south as Tanzania and as far north as Morocco. Let's head now to Morocco. Trance is ubiquitous in Morocco. It is a culture of trance. It is everywhere. I've seen people go into trance listening to popular music on the street. I've seen people go into trance in context of Sufi music, but also popular music. This trance aesthetic, it's become really the, the signature aesthetic of Moroccan music. That's Deborah Caption, professor of performance studies at New York University and author of the book Traveling Spirit Masters, Moroccan Gnawa and Music in the Global Marketplace. The Gnawa are a spiritual brotherhood in North and West Africa. They practice Islam, but have roots in the pre-Islamic populations in sub-Saharan Africa. The Gnawa are not Sufis, but the practice of Islam in Morocco is very Sufi-influenced. Devotion through chanting, through movement, through ecstatic forms of worship. During elaborate rituals called Lila, Gnawan musicians bridge the world of humans and spirits in order to heal people afflicted by spirit-borne illnesses. Lila means night. It happens at night. Candles are lit, incense are burned, and the Gnawa come out with their big tabul, which are very large snare drums decorated with henna, which is very propitious. And they invoke the spirits at that time, letting everyone know in the community that this is taking place. song, each spirit has a color, each spirit has an incense, each spirit has something either to drink or to eat, so all of the senses are involved. Trancing is very low in the hips. There's a lot of stamping of the feet. The arms very often are behind the body. The chest is forward. You know, they'll be circulating their heads moving their body rather briskly from side to side. They also may fall to the ground. They also may be on their knees and swinging their head back and forth. At this point, they are in a state of possession, under the control of one of the maluk, or spirits. There's a, a back and forth and a kind of conversation going on between the spirit that's inhabiting the person and the musician. And at the center of it all is the spirit master, he controls the process of possession through the music. This is called working the spirits. One person gets up to trance, others will get up to trance. And the sign of a real good master is that a lot of people get up to trance. A real good master is not just a master of his instrument, that goes without saying. 
But a real good master is a master with the spirits. That's felt. It's palpable. Next, let's look at another type of possession ceremony, this time on the opposite side of the continent, in Zimbabwe. I'm talking, of course, about the Shona ceremony called Bira, or the plural form Mapira. Naturally, these Mapira sound very different. Like the Lila, a Bira may also be a healing ceremony, but the Shona participate in Mapira for many different reasons. To give thanks, to celebrate seasonal holidays, to ask for rain, or to honor the recently deceased. The goal of your performance is to bring about the possession of spirit mediums who then serve as advisors to other participants, assisting them, giving them counsel with their problems. Paul Berliner is a professor of ethnomusicology at Duke University and author of The Soul of Mbira. If you want to call your departed relatives to these ceremonies, the music that you play needs to be the music that they would have heard at a time when, when they were in the world of the living. A sense of history surrounds this classical repertory. This is the music passed down to us from our ancestors. The instrument used to play this music is called the Mbira Zavadzimu, which means Mbira of the Ancestors. Experienced Mbira ensembles perform these traditional songs but augmented with new improvisations, searching for the right combination to entice the spirit into possession. But the act of possession is usually reserved for a special few in Shona society the spirit mediums who serve as a conduit between the material and the spirit worlds. The mediums are uh, usually elderly people, but not always, and uh, they become possessed by some kind of ancestor. Martin Scherzinger is a media theorist and professor at New York University, and a talented Mira player too, by the way. When the spirit comes, it is usually uh, quite sudden and quite identifiable. So the possession will uh, all of a sudden lead to a very heightened physical state, such as bending over backwards in a perfect arc, dancing in convulsive movements. And one can recognize in these movements uh, the awakened ancestor. Um, so it's as if the Embira music provides a passage to negotiations with ancestors. It is very specific knowledge that players acquire not just technical knowledge of the music, but knowledge of the personalities of the different spirits who possess particular mediums and what their tastes are like. So because the Mbira performances need to appeal to very particular ancestral spirits, the act of spirit possession is never guaranteed. There have been accounts of spirit possession occurring really quickly when the right player is there at the right time. But Usually, these ceremonies go on for hours and hours and hours, which requires enormous stamina on behalf of the performers. I asked some Mbira players, you know, uh, why, why, do, why do you not get blisters on your fingers and so on? And they said, when the ancestor is listening to you, you stop getting blisters. Once one is tuning in and feeling like the music is playing itself, the hours disappear. 
Martin Scherzinger believes that the feeling of the Mbira playing itself is central to Shona's spirit possession. But we'll hear more about that later in the hour. For now, let's continue our journey westward into the Caribbean. <laughs> It goes without saying that the African slave trade reshaped the Western Hemisphere in radical ways, and that slaves, taken from West and Central Africa, brought their spiritual and musical traditions with them across the Atlantic. The Yoruba and Fon were two of the most prominent ethnic groups. Both had elaborate cosmologies, a rich pantheon of deities, and practiced trance rituals. Separated from their homeland and often forced to adopt the religion of their captors, slaves still found ways to preserve their cultural identity through adaptation. In the Caribbean, slaves from the Yoruba and Fon ethnic groups combined elements of their traditional beliefs with Catholicism through a process known as syncretization. These syncretized religions took on different forms depending on the country. So in Brazil, it became Candomblé. In Cuba, Santeria. And of course, in Haiti, Vodou. Liza McAllister, professor of religion at Wesleyan University, explains. Vodou refers now to an all-encompassing and overarching cultural worldview in Haiti that has a particular cosmology, a particular set of deities. It's linked to a medicinal system and a political and juridical system. And in this system, there's the world we live in, the material world, and there's an unseen world. And the unseen world is populated by God the Creator, also Mary and Jesus of the Catholic world, and a series of spiritual entities that are called loi or zange, angels in English. And they're, they're populating the unseen world and they're entering into relationships with humans, much like the Catholic saints. The religious system is about a kind of a reciprocity between the human world and the spirit world. And it's one of both obligation and protection. But even today, voodoo is still associated with stereotypes, so-called voodoo dolls and curses. You know what I'm talking about. 
these Hollywood distortions have left ancient religious practices largely misunderstood in the West. Spirit possession is a prized uh, form of spiritual work. Only some people can be possessed or are possessed by spirits. And the people who are spirit mediums can usually be possessed by different spirits, not just one. And it's thought to be a kind of privileged um, role where the person has access to the spirit world. And in this experience, the sense is that people's personalities are temporarily displaced and the spirit personality enters. And they actually kind of enter from the soil, from the ground, up through the feet into the head. Meanwhile, on the other side of the island of Hispaniola, the Dominican Republic, controlled by Spain, developed parallel spiritual traditions. So in Dominican Republic, sometimes you would hear people say Los Misterios, La Veintiuna División, and um, also a lot of people have started using the term Dominican Voodoo. When the person gets possessed by one of the visions, you gotta know what saint is on that person and you gotta play for that saint. And with these traditions came unique Afro-Dominican devotional music, like palo and salve drumming. Like many of the other cultures we've heard from today, these Afro-Dominican religious parties last for hours. You gotta be prepared to play for three hours if it's necessary, without stopping, without food. You gotta play, play and play and play. Yeah, it goes on forever. I would get home at 8 o'clock in the morning actually, you know, playing all, all night long. And it's also so satisfying because when you're playing and you're, you know, if it's a ceremony and it's hot and you're sweating, but yet I feel so alive when I'm doing that and, and being surrounded by the people and seeing how everybody's really getting into it and, and, and singing along. That was singer Nina Palino and drummer Juan de Leon Metz, two Palo musicians in New York City. And it probably won't surprise you to hear that Palo drumming is also central to Afro-Dominican spirit possession. The drum is like the bridge between the human being and the spirits. I haven't seen anybody getting possessed without drumming. But what if you were forbidden to drum? Well, that was just a case for many African slaves who found themselves in the antebellum South. And in fact, in the United States, actually, the drum was outlawed. That's Robin Sylvan, religious studies scholar and author of Traces of the Spirit. In his book, Sylvan follows the evolution of foreign Yoruba-based religious practices from West and Central Africa through the Caribbean and into the Americas. In our next segment, we'll look at how West African-based religious traditions of trance, possession, and polyrhythmic drumming, what Sylvan calls the possession religion complex, evolved very differently in the U.S. So instead of having the drum, 
you have clapping and stomping and things like that. Instead of dancing, you'll have stepping and stomping your feet. Instead of having, you know, a Catholic liturgy, you'll have Protestant liturgy and hymns, and they'll start sort of Africanizing the hymns so that they have more of a rhythm. And instead of being possessed by a saint, there'll be the terminology of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's a similar phenomenon in that you have the same complex of strongly rhythmic music and people moving to it and people going into trance state and starting to shake and so forth. He also sees these practices, trance, possession and polyrhythmic drumming, move into secular performance settings. You know, there's this interesting tradition in the United States of where it kind of crosses over from an explicitly religious context. And New Orleans really plays a big role in there because New Orleans was the, the one place in the United States where the drum was not outlawed. And so you would have these kind of big gatherings, you know, every Sunday in Congo Square, where all these African slaves would be drumming and people would be dancing. And um, But these weren't necessarily formal religious ceremonies because those ceremonies were outlawed. And so you had this kind of hybridization where I'm sure it was still uh, a religious expression in the way that was available to them, but it was also something that was sort of open to outsiders. So over time, these gatherings at Congo Square became more like performances with an audience. And I think that's where it starts breaking free from its moorings in traditional religions and starts moving into the realm of secular entertainment music. Then you have that same complex of highly rhythmic music and dancing into altered states and trance and possession that starts moving into things like jazz and blues where um, it's seemingly, you know, secular entertainment music. But then at the same time, you have this whole undercurrent of the trance and possession complex that um, feeds into it. You know, the second crossover happened when It crossed over to white Americans who um, don't have any understanding or background in these kinds of things. And so blues turns into R&B and R&B becomes the basis for rock and roll. But in this case, it completely broken free from its moorings and any sort of um, explicitly understood formal religious practice. The way Robin Sylvan sees it, the communities and subcultures that formed around jazz, blues and rock and roll, and the countless genres that followed, are all, in a very real way, indebted to West African religion. And Sylvan believes you can still feel echoes of this possession religion complex at musical gatherings today. He says he felt it himself. Whether that's, you know, people like John McLaughlin and the Mahavishnu Orchestra, or Weather Report, or... I was, a, I was a deadhead when I was younger, so the Grateful Dead and bands like that. So many, many experiences like that, that became something that was really central in my life. And so, um, you know, that's why I would go to concerts. Later, um, you know, I moved to the Bay Area in 1997 and um, got turned on to the rave scene, the electronic dance music scene, and then you know, I would have these experiences on the dance floor. And I think the thing about the, the dance music scene is that there is no break. And so the music is continuous. And so you have the opportunity for that trance state to just go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And from a religious studies perspective, Sylvan considers modern music subcultures as kinds of religious communities themselves. 
simply from a sort of a phenomenological standpoint, you know, looking at um, this whole complex of strongly rhythmic music, different rhythms laid on top of each other, people moving to those rhythms um, and, and going into trance states. It's a community experience and um, it, it provides a place where you can all share this together. And, and I think the same is true with a lot of these music scenes as well. And then the last thing would be a meaning system. These experiences then are incorporated into a larger meaning system, which allows you to make sense out of the experience and make sense out of your life and show you how to live your life. And I think in a lot of cases, you know, when people are really involved with the music scene, that, that does become their life, that does become the lens through which they view the world, that does become their community. So we asked Robin Sylvan, what role does he think trancing plays in secular culture today? We've sort of lost that primacy of religious experience. And so I think a lot of people are not fulfilling that basic human need to have that type of intense religious experience. And I think that's why people gravitate to having these experiences through music. Well, I never thought about it that way before. But how might music itself bring us to these trance states? Certainly, there is no single answer, but that's the question we will look at next. And be sure to visit afropop.org for photos, videos, and more. I'm Georges Collinet. You're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Okay, we're back. Today we've been exploring the nature of trance, and to begin to understand how music might encourage people to fall into trance, let's head back to Zimbabwe. Martin Scherzinger is an Ambira player himself, and he's thought long and hard about its mystical appeal. The approach to uh, the instrument is very different from anything one might expect uh, in the West, purely by way of its technological design. And he says this design is part of the reason Mbira has the power to entrance and call the spirits of the ancestors to possession ceremonies. So the Mbira is, broadly speaking, a musical instrument that is comprised of pieces of metal that emerge from a soundboard. You hold the Mbira in your hands and pluck its metal keys with both thumbs and right forefinger. It's sometimes called a thumb piano in the West, though many Mbira players reject this comparison with a Western instrument. This is a purely African creation. Uh, the interesting thing from a perspective of the West of this instrument, unlike, say, the piano or many other Western instruments, the low and the high notes are not opposed as a kind of left and right. With, um, In the case of the piano, the low notes are off to the left and the high notes are off to the right. Here, the low notes are in the middle and they fan out with, uh, with higher notes off to the ends. So in terms of the way it interfaces with the human body, the thumbs are in the center and the four fingers are off um, to the side. And this is very important because in some sense there's now a mismatch between the motor image and the sounding image. There's a way in which the two are disaligned.
Um, the second important point is that no sound is struck in its bell-like purity because of these um, bottle caps or shells attached to the instrument, which produce um, vibrating and buzzing sounds. Uh, this puts a kind of a veil on the music that uh, that hides the music and in some sense forcing the ear um, to, to move closer into the music. If you watch Mbira players, they often have their heads deeply buried in the instrument as if to sort of seek out something that isn't quite there. The third thing is the way in which the lower tones on the Mbira have extremely prominent overtones. So here, um, for example, is um, the lowest note of the Mbira, okay? This note also has a kind of sixth overtone above it, somewhere up there, which is not the usual fifth above it, but the sixth above it. Okay, so there's an implicit tone in the uh, lowest tone itself, and each of the low tones has that kind of sound. These high-pitched overtones create a sense of an extra, almost hidden melodic line throughout the music, a kind of phantom melody. And you can hear a very high-level pitch that intersects with the higher registers of the music. And if you um, look at testimony by Mbira players, um, such as Hakarutwe Mude, he actually will often use a metaphor of the Mbira seems to sound like a flute. When the Mbira sounds like a flute, he says, the ancestors come. According to Scherzinger's analysis of major Mbira tunes, the cyclical structure of the music also reveals intricate and surprising mathematical relationships. If you took a song like Nyamaropo and you analyze it in terms of uh, Western metrics, you'd have approximately 12 chords that uh, follow each other in a sequence and then repeat themselves in a circle. But if you turned that progression upside down and ran it in reverse, in other words, if you notated the chord progression on staff paper, and then you turned that staff paper upside down and then read it back to front, you would have exactly the same progression. And in the West, that's called retrograde inversion. But Scherzinger says it goes even deeper than that. Um, it doesn't only retrograde invert around itself. If you took a progression, that 12 chord progression that I mentioned a moment ago, and you started a similar progression from the middle of that chord progression, in other words, from the seventh chord, and you ran it backwards by skipping every second chord, and you spread that around the circle twice, Okay. you would find that you get, again, an identical progression, this time running backwards at half the speed. Say that again? 
if you follow a, uh, every second chord, you will eventually find yourself hearing the same music at a slower speed. This kind of thing, I think, these wheels within wheels, um, I think, are part of the experience of generating spirits or bringing about something, um, you know, sort of profoundly different within the same experience. Some sort of uh, uh, conundrum for the ear. So this way in which a sort of helix-like, fractal-like logic where there's a recursion on a different time scale of the same um, progression, weaving multiple um, harmonic uh, progressions into a single progression is a real characteristic of this music. And I've looked at various tunes, various sort of big tunes, and they all have this kind of characteristic. Um, it's just one of the sort of mathematical fallouts of this, um, of this way of approaching the instrument. But when two Mbira players perform together, that's when the magic really happens. The first Mbira player plays a part called Kushaora, which means to lead. It's the melodic backbone of a song. Then the second player enters with the Kusinira part, which means to follow and interweave. One player uh, plays a series, a string of notes or a series of notes. The other player places his series of notes and uh, usually within the spaces of the first player. So it's as if the one interlocks with the other throughout. These interlocking Mbira patterns create brand new kinds of melodic and rhythmic lines. Scherzinger calls these emergent patterns. Uh, we suddenly find the music is much greater than the sum of its parts. starts to sound like something beyond anything I am doing. The direct responsibility is not held by the performance. You can hear something visited upon the music as if from afar. Scherzinger thinks this is part of the reason Mbira music helps Shona spirit mediums get into the trance states required for spirit possession. I don't think it has anything to do with speed or repetition. On the contrary, I think the music doesn't repeat at all. I think it's constantly kaleidophonic. It tricks the ear. It gives you an experience of 
transformation through repetition or a very good way of putting it would be to say this is transformation posing as repetition and it's precisely because it poses as one thing and becomes something else that it issues forth i think this ability to transport you out of the everyday we asked Scherzinger if he thinks this mathematical complexity might be doing something to our brains to help induce a trance. Okay, so uh, look, uh, this is where I sort of get off the bus, right? Uh, my primary interest is in what kinds of musical experiences induce what kind of behavior. All I can do is advance this small piece of evidence. There aren't really, you know, there aren't really answers, and 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 the fact of the question is a sort of revealing uh, a point of departure, you know, for us. I think. I can't satisfactorily take that final step, unfortunately. So what does science have to say about these trance states? We asked producer Brendan Baker to investigate. So there are a bunch of reasons why it's been difficult for neuroscientists to study what happens in the brain during trance ceremonies. Some of them are just practical. You can't just stick a trance dancer or a spirit medium into an MRI and scan his brain. It's loud for one. You're stuck inside this hulking machine, can't move around. And frankly, a sterile lab isn't really the most inspiring place to hold a Leela or a Bira. But there are some researchers who have been starting to look into the nature of trance. Well, I've always been interested in understanding how our brain helps us to experience reality and understand that reality. Like this guy. Dr. Andrew Newberg is the director of integrative medicine at Thomas Jefferson University. And I spend most of my time doing research, looking at brain function and how it relates to different states of mind. And he uses neural imaging to understand how the brain operates when we feel religious or spiritual experiences. And as it happens, Dr. Newberg has been looking into trance states. I think a trance state is, is really an altered state of consciousness, uh, typically induced by some type of process. Sometimes it's a practice like meditation or prayer. Uh, it could potentially be induced by various uh, psychopharmacological substances, but ultimately get somebody into an altered state of consciousness in which they experience the world in a different way, on a more spiritual level, on a more supernatural level, but one in which the person feels deeply integrated into the entire universe in some form or the other. As we've heard earlier in the program, trance isn't necessarily one particular state. Just compare the meditative ecstasy of Tarab with the wildly energetic drumming and spirit possession of Vodou. Similarly, Newberg sees trance as existing on a kind of continuum. And we don't really know whether or not those experiences are all fundamentally the same and just described differently, or whether they are actually fundamentally different types of experiences. But for any given individual, there does seem to be this kind of moment, this kind of jump that occurs which helps them to identify it as that mystical state, as that trance state. Newberg wanted to figure out what actually happens in the brain during trance. But first, he had to find a group of trancers to work with. And so, he went to church. Um, well, glossolalia, or speaking in tongues, is basically a practice that derives out of the Pentecostal Christian tradition. 
they typically start out in some form of prayer, and then after some period of time, they begin to make a vocalization that kind of sounds like a foreign language of some kind. Hence the phrase speaking in tongues. So it's not a language per se, but for the individual, it's a very deeply spiritual or religious experience. It's basically a Pentecostal form of spirit possession. I mean, it, it really is a trance state. It takes a little bit of time, but by doing the prayer that they're doing, they begin to really lapse into this other state of consciousness. It's difficult to arouse them or distract them out of that state. It takes them a period of time to kind of come back, so to speak, uh, into their everyday reality state. And, and it's a very powerful emotional state. Many of them are crying to some degree, or at least, you know, they have some tears coming down. And uh, it's a very powerful experience for them. In order to see which parts of the brain were most active when people speak in tongues, he designed an experiment. But instead of using an MRI machine, he used a different neuroimaging technique called SPECT. SPECT stands for Single Photon Emission Computed Tomography. What it basically is doing is allowing us to look at changes in the blood flow of the brain. And by injecting a small amount of a radioactive tracer, which follows blood flow, we can see what areas of the brain are getting more or less blood flow in any given state. The most active areas of the brain use more blood, so more of the tracer would be present. Then you could scan his test subject's brains and take a picture to see where the tracer wound up. It's really just capturing that one moment in time. It's when you give that injection. So Newberg injected his test subjects with this tracer at two different times, before and in the middle of speaking in tongues. It was actually more of a singing in tongues, I should say. First, what we did was we had the individual singing to the gospel music, but in English. So without speaking in tongues, just to get a baseline reading for comparison. A few minutes later, he did the same thing, but this time he told them, okay, allow yourself to start singing in tongues. And after about five or six minutes or so, they would start to kind of bounce back and forth between speaking in tongues and speaking in English. And once they were kind of fully speaking in tongues, that was when I would give them the second injection. And again, we would capture what was going on in their brain at that moment. We would allow them to finish the speaking in tongues and then we would scan their brain. So, by comparing pictures from each of these two injections, he could figure out which parts of the brain were more or less active during glossolalia. One of the main areas of the brain that I was, had really hypothesized that there would be a difference was actually in the frontal lobe. Uh, this is located right behind the, the, the forehead. And this is a part of our brain that normally helps us to feel like we are purposefully making things happen. So if we concentrate on a math problem, if we concentrate on driving directions or whatever, we increase the activity in our frontal lobes. And when people do practices like meditation and prayer, because they're concentrating on a mantra or an image or whatever it is that they're doing, that we have generally seen increased activity in the frontal lobes. But that's not what he saw in his glossolalia subjects. In this practice, when they were speaking in tongues, what we saw was a decrease of activity in the frontal lobes of the brain. Uh, this is consistent with the feeling that they are not purposely in charge. In fact, some of the language areas also were decreased. So it is consistent with the fact that they feel that they are not purposely making this vocalization, that it's something that feels as really as if it's coming from somewhere else. A few years later, Newberg worked on another experiment to explore trance, this time with Brazilian spirit mediums. So we got 10 different mediums who practice this thing called psychography, where they go into a trance and write down whatever spirits tell them to. Things that were kind of coming into them from the spirit world, so to speak. Newberg used the same kind of imaging techniques as before, 
But it turns out five of the mediums were considered experienced trance writers, meaning they had anywhere from 15 to 47 years of practice. But the other five were relatively inexperienced psychographers. When we looked at the experienced practitioners, what we found was very similar to what we saw in the speaking in tongues. We saw decreases of activity in some of the frontal lobe areas and particularly some of the areas that are involved in language and in writing. Um, and so this is consistent with the idea that they are not purposefully doing it, that it's something that seems to, you know, at least to them, feel like it's coming from another source, not their own consciousness. But when Newberg looked at the inexperienced mediums, he actually saw the opposite results. What we saw was an increase of activity in these same basic areas. Which confused him. Okay, so well, what, what are they doing if, if, they're doing if their brains are doing two different things? And I guess the best analogy that I've come up with is, um, is with regard to music and how we learn to play an instrument. So when we first learn to play an instrument like the piano, we have to very purposely play each key as we make the music. We're, we're concentrating hard on making it happen. That would show up in the brain as increased activity in those areas. And, uh, and brain scans of highly proficient musicians have often shown decreases of activity in these same basic areas. So as we get very proficient at playing the piano as a concert pianist and so forth, their hands, their fingers move across the keyboard almost effortlessly uh, in some almost like a flow experience, almost not even purposely making it happen. It just kind of happens to them, much the same way that these highly proficient individuals who do speaking in tongues or the mediumistic practices may feel. Theoretically, these individuals who are more proficient are probably having deeper experiences, however that might be measured, but, um, but ultimately it's still something that can allow us to extrapolate to other types of practices. So it may be that by practicing trance rituals, we're training our brain to get better at losing that sense of intentionality which could help us get better at moving into other states of consciousness. One of the main things that we've learned is that these spiritual practices appear to involve uh, very specific types of altered states of consciousness, where the person's frontal lobes are really taken offline and they don't feel that they are purposely doing this kind of practice, that it's almost happening to them. And it tells us something about just the overall nature of spirituality, I think, because part of the process of spirituality is that there is something else out there, whatever it is, that kind of speaks through us or speaks to us uh, from somewhere outside of ourselves. So if we really want to understand the nature of trance, Newberg thinks we need to take an interdisciplinary approach. While science is wonderful, um, there are certain phenomenological aspects of humanity, our consciousness, our mind, uh, the various things that we feel that are very difficult to get uh, a handle on from a scientific perspective and trying to utilize that spiritual side of ourselves, that emotional side, that psychological and social side of ourselves is also very fundamentally important in linking that to the scientific approaches that we may take. Insights from science, philosophy, spirituality, and music can all inform one another. And hopefully together, that scientific and that spiritual side will help us to really answer the truly big questions about who we are as human beings and what our purpose in life here and in the universe is uh, and how we ultimately try to understand the nature of reality, which is the, the conundrum that all of our brains are actually in. Thanks, Brandon. Well, even though we've just scratched the surface, I hope this hip-tip edition of Afropop Worldwide might contribute to the conversation. But in the meantime, let's see how one trance tradition is adapting to advances in musical technology. Meet Val Gentil. 
My name is Val Chanty. I go by Val Inc. Val Inc. is basically Val incorporating uh, the sounds of my ancestors into this modern digital age. I'm from Haiti, born and raised. Where I grew up is uh, Bisoton Secantois. It's pretty much outside of the main city. It's in the hills and it's really like a paradise. You know, where I grew up is pretty much like a paradise. It's in the mountains. You pretty much hear melodies from the wind. You know, then you hear the roosters like in the morning. You could hear the drummers playing like two mountains, you know, awake as it like, you know, reverberates throughout the whole place because they're doing like the ritual. So it's part of like a rhythm that goes with the whole culture and with the whole place actually. My culture is Vodou. I grew up in this kind of culture. My family is a Vodou family, so everyone gets you know involved. So certain people gravitate towards cooking, certain people gravitate towards singing. My grandmother is what you would consider like a priestess, what we call a mambo. Let's say you have a cold, she would go and say, oh yeah, you need two leaves of these and two, and she would boil it and then you would drink it and you would be good. You know, my thing was always drums. You know, I feel like it's like the ultimate way of expression. You know, drummers are actually, you know, connecting to that wood. And for me, the wood, like the smell and everything is pure Haiti. It's pure, even when you play it, you smell it. You smell the goat skin. You know, and usually it's from, you know, like a neighbor's goat that they killed, you know, last week. And they, like the whole place, you know, we ate it and now we have the skin we're playing. So it's like, this is part of you. It's not separate. So that's why I actually love drums. I came to the U.S. when I was um, 14, 15. That was back in 86, 87. So it was like, you know, break dancing and hip hop and DJing. I was like, wow, what are they doing? What is this? Oh, rhythm. And it, you know, it's totally different from, uh, you know, the Haitian, you know, them, but I could hear where like, if it's like a hip hop beat, boom, that, boom, boom, that. 80 would have it. So it's all in between. So I could hear, oh, okay, they're just not playing the in betweens, they're playing just the hits. So I was like, wow, I can work with this. I'll always have my djembe's and run around to do gigs here and there. I had a couple of um, djembe's and I was gonna get another one. I was like, wow, okay, I'm gonna have to cap this all the time. Okay, I can't just keep going from cap to cap and cap to cap. Someone mentioned, I heard the word sampler. I was like, what's a sampler? So I can sample these sounds? Okay, let me look into this. And I started like doing, you know, research. So when I found out, you know, about the sampler, which is the um, MPC, I was like, wow, this thing, I can just sample my djembe's and, and get the authentic sound and just scrape, put it in my backpack and just go. It was all just practical. So then I just fell in love with that whole aspect of like sampling and, you know, start, you know, working with sound, like tweaking the sound and, you know, tearing it you know, apart and putting it back you know, together, just studying what that sound, how far I can stretch it. Like, well, if my ancestors took it this far, how far can we take it with this new technology and these new tools? The turntable to me has always been very you know, percussive. You know, when I first saw a turntable, I was like, oh, two drums, I could, you know, like bongos because it was just two, one and two. So it's like, you know, you have pairs. And in drumming, when you have pairs, you have, you know, high and low. So I was actually hitting the turntables like they were drums. The first time I actually saw one. I discovered every time I, I would hit it, the needle would flip. It would be cool actually, because it would skip, you know, the music. And I was like, wow, what is it doing? But it also scratched, you know, the, <laughs> the record. 
<laughs> so yeah, and then later on, got into the whole art of it and you know, realized, wow, it is like a drum because I can you know, like manipulate the sounds of the rhythms that are on the turn, to, you know, on the record. I have a whole bunch of stuff. This is stuff dealing with my culture. I have a lake ba, which is an ancient chant from, you know, people in, you know, like a live ritual, you know, singing about lake ba. Lake ba is one of the deities that is always like called on first, you know, he's like, you know, in the crossroads. So he's dealing with the living and the dead. So lake ba is, you know, of course, like a, like a motif that I use a lot because I'm actually working with that frequency. So that's why I wanted to use like an actual sound from the, you know, like the ritual because it carries a certain frequency when they're actually in the ritual, you know, and I, what I did to it, I put it through a filter and I stretch it. Nago papi tibita pale nago mal nago. It's a chant saying nago. Nago is a nago, you know, nation from you know Africa came to you know Haiti. Um, so they say nago papiti means nago is not small. <laughs> so it's 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 pretty much saying you know it looks or you know deceiving. So be careful how you perceive things. Haiti's the same way. It's a very small place. Like, you know, you always hear Haiti's small, it's poor, it's this, it's that. You know, but still, we were the first black place on this planet Earth to be free of oppressive France. And, you know, so, I mean, it's serious. So, Nago Papiti, you know, and then the next word it says, Piga Pale Nago Mal. It says, don't speak bad about how you perceive it, because it may not be what you think you perceive. So, it's, it's like Haitian, you know, philosophy. Back in the day, you'd say voodoo, people would totally just, you know, freak out. And even in the room, you could tell people want to move, but they're like, you know. But I mean, that's the challenge, to be in different places and try to bring that, that same spirit. I did a gig at Constipademi, which is like in, um, in Sweden. It's different because where I was playing, it was like a church, you know, and we had barely any speakers, but it was such a like small, you know, environment. People started to trance. They just go into this trance. In the room, you can tell people want to move and it's like engulfing them, you know? I mean, I just took a quick, I, I could feel it. I didn't even have to look, but I, I could tell. They were just like totally going into that type of trance. I'm in Bisoton I'm in the ritual. I'm in my yard. You know, that's where most of the rituals take place. So I'm right back in that space. I don't really try to think. It's more like a muscle memory thing. I just kind of feel, feel more than think. You know, so that's that's yeah, that's what it is. It's it's a feeling. It takes over you. And I guess that's what they say, the possession.
musician Val Gentil. Today, we've explored trance from many different angles. But are we really closer to knowing the true nature of trance? Well, maybe just a little more now. In the end, trance is something best understood through participation and experience. I like the way Val puts it. It takes over and you feel it and you can move and it doesn't have to be super drastic. Something that moves you, it goes through you and you just feel like, oh, wow, I don't know what that was, but it sure felt like something. Support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts that believes a great nation deserves great arts, and PRI, Public Radio International affiliate stations across the U.S. And remember to support the station that brings you Afropop Worldwide. Visit afropop.org for interviews, videos, photos, and more. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. Thanks to Martin Scherzinger, Andrew Newberg, Robin Sylvan, Val Gentil, Kelly Webb, Glenn West, and Judith Becker for their help with this program. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Brandon Baker with help from Banning Air and Marlon Bishop. And production assistance from Ling Ling Yang. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan and Brandon Baker. Benning Air edits our website, afropop.org. Our producer for new media is Sam Backer. And I'm Georges Collinet. Public Radio International.